And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, April 5th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, justice is urged to tighten up its program to keep former convicts from returning to prison. Plus, how the Navy keeps its guns ready to fire no matter where in the world they are. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the debate over federal telework has sharpened. Congressional Republicans passed a bill earlier this year to get feds back in their offices, and they're calling for more data on the impact of telework. Now, the American Federation of Government Employees finished a survey with 3,000 responses. A majority say telework works. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman spoke with AFGE Deputy Legislative Director Daniel Horowitz. Overwhelmingly, they said that agency productivity has improved as a result of expanding telework due to the pandemic. More than 70% felt that productivity was significantly better. And by the same token, if telework were curtailed, most felt that productivity would suffer and agencies would have a hard time recruiting and retaining employees. So I think the survey is very important data as our elected leaders look at the issue of telework in federal agencies. And they've passed legislation in the House, at least, that would try to roll back telework. That would be a serious mistake based on the results of this large survey. The Show Up Act, that's been a big topic of conversation for unions and just a lot of people. I guess the other side of the argument here and the argument for why they wanted to pass that bill was that they said telework caused backlogs and delays during the pandemic. But the survey that AFGE had clearly shows that, you know, employees felt differently. Can you elaborate a little bit more about maybe why there were some of some of the backlogs during the pandemic, at least according to your survey? What our survey found, only about 1% of respondents felt that lenient telework policies were a cause of not providing good customer service to the public. I think what's really gone on here is that basically a large swath of the federal government had to move out of the offices without notice when the pandemic happened, not necessarily with all the IT infrastructure in place. And it's remarkable in a sense that government continued to operate well throughout that period. Really, it, it turns the, the argument of the Show Up Act on, on its ear. What, what our 3,000 federal workers are saying is that this is positive for productivity, it's positive for recruitment and retention, and the barriers to improving customer service in agencies are things like poor management in some cases and, critically, lack of staffing. And if we were to set the clock back on telework, that's just going to make staffing worse, actually going to make it harder to deliver good customer service to the public. It seems like a you know a lot of the agencies that have taken the most heat from this topic are places like the IRS, the Department of Veterans Affairs, the Social Security Administration. That's just a couple of examples. Did you hear from employees at some of those agencies that have had maybe more contention with the, the role of telework at their agency? Social Security is a big part of our membership. The key issue there is lack of staffing, lack of resources. It's not telework. Actually, telework should be increased at the Social Security Administration, as well as providing more staff and resources for the agency. I want to go back to something that you 
briefly mentioned a couple minutes ago, you talked about employees in the survey saying that a lot of the backlogs or some of the issues at agencies were caused by poor management or ineffective leadership and that that could harm productivity. Can you give me more detail about what were really like the, the actual issues with management and where are employees looking for you know things to change with that? Well, the survey didn't break down what they meant by that, but I can tell you that across the board, we need more effective management, for example, to get uh, collective bargaining agreements in place that are fair to workers, that rescind some of the punitive policies from the last administration, and that continues to be a struggle in several agencies. So I think that is what is top of mind for our members. Uh, let's get back to a more fair and equitable management structure where there are reasonable expectations around workers and that will lead to a more productive workforce. A lot of the results of this survey were pretty straightforward, but I was curious if there was anything that when you saw the results were surprising or unexpected from what you heard from employees. I think what was surprising to me was just how overwhelming the response is. Overwhelmingly, federal workers are saying that telework works and that they would lose a lot of good people if telework were curtailed. Uh, the numbers speak for themselves. This is a very large survey. The part of the show up act that we thought was fine was to collect more data from agencies about telework. The part that was not so fine from our standpoint was setting the clock back on the policies themselves to pre-pandemic. Here, AFGE has gone in short order, collected a ton of data from actual federal workers, more than 3,000 of them, that supports telework and keeping in place and building on what we have. The results definitely trended that the majority say that telework, you know, improves productivity, but there is obviously some who say that it doesn't. Did you hear anything, any specifics from maybe the vocal minority who were thinking in the opposite direction where maybe telework wasn't beneficial? No, we didn't. And, you know, it's really just about 1% who who felt that productivity was harmed or that telework policy should be curtailed. So overwhelmingly, close to 99% of federal workers think that telework policies are working and they should be kept in place and expanded where possible. It's really helping people at multiple levels. It's improving a work-life balance. It's eliminating hours spent commuting. It's improving the environment. And it's keeping agencies productive and serving the public. Telework has been a pretty hot topic of debate for several years, basically since the pandemic started. Any reason that AFGE decided to conduct this survey now? One reason we conducted it now was we wanted to understand directly from our members what changes had occurred since we last surveyed this topic. Interestingly, they said that in many cases, agencies have continued to expand telework since 2021. So from the agency management standpoint, it must be that even as the pandemic has receded, they feel telework is helping them deliver effectively on their mission. You talked about the Show Up Act, and maybe that is causing some uncertainty about return to office plans. That's kind of been a question for a lot of federal employees. But in the survey, what was the sense of how employees felt like telework might change in the future for them? It was mixed. Some people expect telework to be pulled back to some degree. Uh, some people expect it to be expanded. It was mixed across agencies. You know, I guess one point that I would make about the Show Up Act, and I think it is unfortunate, is it would force agencies to throw away their collective bargaining 
agreements that they've made with workers uh, since the pandemic started. And in many cases, agency managers have agreed with the premise that telework is helping them with their mission, helping them be productive, helping them serve customers, helping them recruit the best talent. And they've embedded those ideas into collective bargaining agreements with their workforce. But this law would throw that all in the dustbin. So that's the real harm if this were to become law. To the extent that some agencies are struggling with customer service, the fundamental cause, and our survey reveals this, is lack of staffing and resources. Let's not forget what the government has gone through even years before the pandemic, which is sequestration, budget cuts, staffing cuts. That is what is harming retention, recruitment, customer service. We need to get salaries where they need to be. We need to get staffing where it needs to be. And then distractions like this telework issue are going to fade away because we'll have enough people in agencies to deliver what the American people want. AFGE Deputy Legislative Director Daniel Horowitz speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how the Navy keeps its guns ready to fire no matter where in the world they are. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Navy famously has a challenge keeping its ships ship-shape and ready. Bolted to naval ships, though, are the weapon systems that support a ship's purpose. Naval Supply Systems Command has a special unit for that called Weapons Systems Support. At the Sea Air Space Conference this week, I caught up with the Weapons Systems Support Commander, Rear Admiral Kenneth Epps. So we are an S-3 command under the Naval Supply Systems Command, and our role is to provide program and supply support to all of our warfighting domains. Think aircraft, submarines, ships. Uh, We also do significant work for all of our allies and partners as well. And really in lay speak, our role is to be the end-to-end supply chain integrators for the Navy to ensure that we are maximizing lethality to our warfighters through the supply chain. My command is responsible uh, to the Department of the Navy in that regard. Now, having visited Dahlgren, I've seen the testing going on of the naval Aegis guns centers, and so yes. forth and right. watch those things plunk down the river. Right. But, you know, Navy ships are deployed far away. Right. And the weapons systems specifically aboard, those are treated separately for purposes of program from, say, propulsion and right. logistics and other supply types right. of support? Right. Yes. Yes. What are some of the challenges of keeping those weapons going when they're thousands of miles away? I mean, the challenges are endless, right? I think the most important thing that we do is to ensure that all of our weapon systems uh, have the endurance they need to be able to sustain in any kind of conflict that we get into. So there's some very complex algorithms that go into that. We can do that principally from the shore to support all of our forces that are at sea, Uh, under the waters and and in the air. Uh, So it's easy for us to do that, but it's a very difficult and challenging supply chain that we have to manage that is truly global. Uh, And as you know, in the Navy, the uh, key uh, battle unit is the carrier strike group and the amphibious readiness group. And so our ability to support them uh, from our command in Pennsylvania is something we've been doing for many, many, many years. Uh, It's challenging, but one that we have uh, fairly mastered pretty well. 
And I imagine that a lot of repair and maintenance has to happen aboard, that is to say. But do, is there ever a case where they sort of call you like you would call AAA when you can't change the tire yourself? There are ways of doing that. You know, we typically are going to have two ways of repairing stuff. So we have Navy organic capacity, Marine Corps capacity, who can repair it. So think Marines and, and sailors who do this work. And then we are in significant partnership with our commercial uh, entities. So think of all of our OEMs, our original equipment manufacturers, uh, who build the planes, the ships, the submarines, uh, and we that partnership with them allows us that in an emergency when 911 is dialed, we have the capacity to help out. You could get there. With we, can, we can get there. We can get the thing there. Uh, in the worst case scenario, we can get a human there if we need to, but typically we can get the thing the there. The thing there. Yes. And these weapon systems are pretty complex. They're really subsystems. They are systems of systems in and of themselves uh, uh, yes. mounted on something that yes. you know takes them to the battle. Right. And question is, how is the supply base looking? Because there's probably a hundred suppliers or a yes. thousand suppliers that yes. make up something that rotates and goes boom. Yeah. So we have thousands of individual suppliers, but as you and, and you well know, the industry has really consolidated over the last many, many years. So we have, in, in, in many ways, we are sole source or single source on a majority of the product lines that we manage. So in that way, it's less challenging because we have a certain number of players that we know to deal with. Uh, the challenge becomes, as the, the forces of economics move about, being able to keep industry at pace with our warfighting needs and making sure that sustainment is always a top priority for them. Oftentimes, uh, our manufacturers will build a new thing, we'll send it out and then sustainment previously has often sometimes been not of primacy and what we've done what we've learned recently is that's you know 95 percent of the life of any ship or aircraft or submarine is in a sustainment uh, angle so sure. what do we do to support that that's where my team and the program offices come in and say you're talking about a gun that might be on a airplane right. or a cannon type of thing that might be on a ship right. what is the relationship of the actual ordinance to the system, because if the ordinance changes, right. does the system have to change, right. and vice versa? Right. Is that all under weapon system support? So that is not the the moniker of weapon. Don't associate that with ordinance. We do uh, manage ordinance in Naval Supply Systems Command. My right. parent command has that an organization that does ammunition, uh, but within my specific entity, when we say weapon system support, we mean the actual ship aircraft, submarine, and the attendant systems that are on board those platforms. That's the weapon, not the, the bullet. No, understood. But if, say, there's a metallurgical change sure. in the bullet, so to sure. speak, or they have a different firing compound at the end, right. that might affect the delivery system. So you have to talk to each other, right? It could, yes. We do have to talk to each other, and that's it's a very complex web of support uh, between the fleet, uh, the folks uh, in, the, in the hardware systems commands who manage that, uh, and then the role that we play as well. And a given system has a long life because yes. a ship has a long life. Yes. And so is there a mechanism to feedback for kind of continuous improvement between what you're experiencing during tests or trials at sea or, you know, God forbid, actual combat, and back to that supplier as to what happened and yes. what they can do to make it 
Better. Yes. So, I mean, um, there is a continuous feedback loop. It is an eternal, uh, it never stops. The feedback loop changes because remember, the thing that was built 20 years ago has been modernized and updated over a subsequent number of years. So as the, let's say the ship as an example, has modernized, the things that have been put on there have changed. And so that's in some ways a very different ship than we bought 20 years ago. So there's a continuous feedback loop into the support mechanisms. My team at Naval Supply Systems, Command Weapon Systems Support, the program office, and in conjunction, we do all the things necessary to update the support and to make sure it gets back to the ship so that they are ready to do what they have to do. And during development of, say, a future new system, where it's, there's nothing yet to support, right. what's your involvement then? So we are critical to that. So we are a cradle-to-grave sustainment enabler for all weapon systems. Uh, you look at some of the new unmanned aircraft that are coming out uh, as an example, and my team is there with the program offices discerning what the requirement is for this new weapon system and then, and then determining with the uh, manufacturer of the platform what needs to be bought in initially and then what kind of support they would need over the 20, 30, 40 year lifespan to ensure that the resources that are required to properly sustain that weapon system are available initially so that we can do our job and, and sustain it for its lifetime. And the operation of these systems is down to the sailor. Yes and it could be someone that is not high rank. Right. And so you must have a mechanism for, hey, what's it like when you actually use this thing? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the rank in this way is, is really immaterial. You know, our, the, uh, the center of our universe is our sailors. Uh, you know, in the sustainment world, I say the mechanics are, are the, really the center of our universe. And so the person who is turning the wrench, who is operating that equipment, knows better than any PhD who probably designed it and certainly knows better than my team who are away from it and know that in the abstract, what we have to do to support it, we can do. But really, those sailors, wonderful men and women, wonderfully talented, wonderfully trained, they are, they are really that first step to allowing us to know exactly if that thing is operating as it's supposed to. And being based in Pennsylvania, Mechanicsburg. Uh, uh, my headquarters is in uh, Philadelphia, but I have an office in Mechanicsburg in Norfolk, and then NAF Proper is in Mechanicsburg. And do you ever get out of Mechanicsburg, out of Philadelphia, and maybe land on deck and say, how's it going? Uh, I, so I spend, as the commander of NAFSUP WSS, I spend probably a majority of my time traveling, seeing key partners, both on the commercial side, uh, and then going out to see the fleet commanders. So yes, I, I, I am constantly doing pulse checks to ensure that what we think we're providing and what we're delivering to that sailor I talked about, that those two, there's no gap between them. You got to make sure the paint holds up in salty and the, air. And the paint holds up too. That's super important. Navy Rear Admiral Kenneth Epps, commander of the Weapon System Support Command, part of the Naval System Supply Command. We spoke at this year's Sea Air Space Conference in Maryland. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Sail with the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the defense industrial base is in a big federal union's crosshairs. But first, justice is urged to tighten up its program to keep former convicts from returning to prison. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A persistent problem for the Federal Bureau of Prisons is the rate at which former convicts come back. 
45% of released inmates end up rearrested within three years. A 2018 law required the Justice Department to measure individuals' risk of recidivism and take steps to prevent it. The Government Accountability Office has taken a new look at that program and found some room for improvement. The GAO's Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues, Greta Goodwin, joins me now. Ms. Goodwin, good to have you back. Thank you for having me, Tom. And it looks like they have a couple of problems at BOP, at the Bureau of Prisons. One is how they're managing the data surrounding the management of individuals in their custody and also what they're delivering such that people still come back at this almost 50 percent rate of recidivism. So what were you looking at in this study? So we were asked to look at you know, how BOP was managing the risk and needs assessment that they're doing when individuals enter the facilities. We were also looking at, you know, the different types of programs that they might have been providing people who are incarcerated to help address issues around recidivism and also ensuring that those programs were indeed the right programs for the individuals. We, of course, provided recommendations on how to improve all of these. And what were the issues that they were not using the data carefully enough or thoroughly enough to understand what each individual needs. I mean, they've got, what, about 150,000 people in the federal prison system, and they need to tailor services for each one? Yeah, so how this works, when an individual enters the facility, you know, BOP, I think, would say from day one, the focus should be on reentry. And so when an individual enters the facility, there's a needs assessment that is done for them to get a better understanding for what they might need, whether it's literacy, whether it's anger or you know hostility management, like what might they need to get them prepared to, to re-enter. And then BOP goes about providing services to help with that. So they might provide you know anger management classes. They might provide some type of some literacy classes to help individuals, you know, be better prepared that when they come out, they can re-enter society more successfully. What we were finding is that this wasn't always being done consistently and as thoroughly as we would like to see. We were also finding that there's this thing called time credits. So when an individual is participating in different types of activities, they're given time credits to help shave off some time on their their prison sentence. And so what we were finding was the types of programs that were being made available weren't as comprehensive. The types of data that were being collected about what these needs were also weren't as comprehensive as they could have been. And so when you have that issue, if you don't really have a good sense for what the individual needs, how can you effectively tailor the programs to help them? And then a major thing that we found was even when that was happening, there was not a lot of evaluation being done. So evaluating whether these programs were indeed successful and then continuing to monitor. And so it was an evaluation and monitoring concerns that we also had that we made recommendations on. It's almost like they have to operate as a long-term hospital in that sense because every inmate is different. And you have people ranging from horrible, violent people that you know are in the supermax to, say, financial criminals that are in minimum security. And so... Well, probably people never get out of supermax, or maybe they go from there to a regular high security prison. There, the anger management and violent management might be needed, whereas people that are in there for so-called white-collar crimes might need 
you know, moral training or something, or but they have a totally different set of issues. Is that part of their challenge? This is a big challenge for, for the agency, and you're absolutely right. Each person is, is different, and the agency, BOP, needs to find a way to address the needs of approximately 158,000 individuals that they are responsible for the care and custody of. So we do recognize that this is a challenge for them, but because this is what is required under the First Step Act, and also what is required if you're wanting to ensure that people can re-enter society, then you have to pay attention to these. And so when someone comes in, when an individual uh, comes into the prison facility, you know, from day one, assessing what their needs are, paying attention to what some of the risk factors might be for them in terms of recidivism, and then making certain that the programs are, are made available. We've reported in the past on BOP has a number of staffing challenges, and that might play some part into this. You know, being able to provide all of these programs, you've got to have the staff available and around to do it. We're speaking with Greta Goodwin. She's director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. In some cases, they have the challenge of simply maintaining basic order in an institution, let alone seeing to the individual's cares and needs. Fair to say? Absolutely. And this adds an additional challenge. And that, you know, when we were, when we did the staffing report, we talked about this in terms of, you know, sometimes you've got officers who are doing double duty, you've got your, your augmenting or having folks whose main job isn't a correctional officer, you know, having to come in and, and provide some assistance there. And that is taking staff away from these other duties of providing the programs. If you need someone teaching the classes or managing the classes, that's happening as well. And so this is kind of a, it's a massive operation. The, the Bureau of Prisons is a massive operation. But again, if the focus is on ensuring that people can come out and re-enter successfully, you've got to find ways to manage these programs. You've got to find ways to ensure that people's risk and their needs are being calculated properly. You've got to find ways to ensure that the programs are, are being made available and that people are participating in those programs. And then you've got to find ways to ensure that the evaluation of those programs to test whether they are actually doing what they're what they are supposed to do. And then you've got to monitor to see like who's taking what, who's doing what, and how successful are these programs are for them. And you had a fairly long list, eight recommendations for the Bureau. Just summarize what it is you're trying to get them to do and what was the response? So we did. We had we had eight recommendations. And basically what these recommendations are about are ensuring that the First Step Act can be successfully implemented. Some of them are foundational. One of the recommendations we have is on ensuring that they maintain complete and accurate data and also making that readily available. Because one of the things we were finding is for the staff who were going in to look to see like what's needed, where are the data, it needs to be readily available for them so that they can then take that and apply that to to what they need to do to, to create these programs. But anyway, so the recommendations speak to maintaining that, maintaining complete and accurate data, ensuring that the monitoring efforts are happening, because if you're developing these mechanisms, you need to make certain that you're incorporating them properly throughout. And also on an ongoing basis, making certain that you have evidence-based recidivism reduction programs. And so when we talk about ensuring that you have programs, you need to make certain that they're recidivism reduction-based kinds of programs. And those are the programs that you absolutely want to be evaluating and the programs you want to be monitoring. In some ways, do you get the sense that 
the way that prisons are operated is a really good barometer of the way society operates. Yes, prisoners are people that have earned punishment, but in that sense, it makes them the most vulnerable people, among the most vulnerable types of people, and therefore proper care within the context of what is a punishment situation is a reflection of our humane values. Or is that beyond the scope of the report? (laughs) So that is beyond the scope of the GAO report. But again, BOP is charged with the care and custody of about 158,000 individuals. And in doing that and taking on that charge and being and taking on that responsibility, there are many different things that they're going to have to be paying attention to. When an individual in, enters the facility, they've got to do that assessment to see what that person is, needs. If it's literacy, if it's anger management, if it's skills, job skills training, like what do they need? And then you have to provide those programs to ensure that they're getting what they need. Throughout that process, there needs to be ongoing evaluation and ongoing monitoring so that BOP has a good sense for whether those programs are effective at all. And then once they know that, then they might need to they might need to target differently, they might need to create additional programs or they might need to just do some modifications. When we were doing this report, you know, and the, the our recommendations speak to this, if that can't get done, then there will always be a question about how effective things are. Sure. And did they generally agree with the findings and what what's uh, what comes next? So there were eight recommendations and they agreed with all but two of them. And the two that they disagreed with focus on monitoring and evaluating. And in particular, it focused on having a good sense for what we call unstructured productive activities. So that means an individual in the facility can earn time credits and that would shave off time for their sentences from their sentences, but they have to be engaged in productive activities. Some of those activities are what BOP will call unstructured. We asked, what does that mean? What does that look like? Do you, you know, do you have a list of those unstructured, unstructured productive activities? And in their response to us, they stated that they, there wasn't really a need for that. We maintain that there is, because if, you are a person who's incarcerated and you're going and taking these programs and participating in these activities, you need to have a good sense for what's going to get you the time credits that will help you shave shave off time on your sentence. And then, of course, after you have that list of unstructured activities, we were asking that they evaluate whether they are effective. Greta Goodwin is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the defense industrial base is in a big federal union's crosshairs. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. The largest federal employees union says industry is price gouging the Defense Department. The American Federation of Government Employees urges Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to consider emergency waivers to recapitalize DOD's own production capabilities. This has commitments to Ukraine diminish U.S. supplies of ordnance and launch platforms. For industry reaction, the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, they do point out a real issue, and that is 
it's tough to resupply the Stinger missiles and Javelins and so forth that have shipped to Ukraine. But maybe there's a better answer than calling price gouging. Tom, thanks for having me on this morning. You're absolutely right. Uh, We've got a major illumination that's occurred ever since the Russian invasion of Ukraine February a year ago that shows that our total stockpile that we had for munitions was more inadequate than we thought for the kind of combat that we're providing support to there. And I think the AFGE letter, to the extent that it highlights that issue, um, is adding on to a debate that's been going on more than a year now. The real question, though, is what do you do to address it, right? You go back to the Cold War, which is obviously when I got my start in DOD, we actually had the capability inside the department to determine what kind of surge capacity we would need for certain types of weapon systems and munitions, as well as spare parts and supplies. And we actually funded the provision of that surge capacity in industry and throughout the federal government, including, by the way, in the organic depots themselves. The AFGE does reference the organic capabilities. These are places like the Waterfleet Arsenal and places where there is casting and polishing and production capability factories operated by DOD. Well, yes. And throughout the history of America, actually, we've had a combination of public sector facilities and workers and capabilities and capacities and private sector facilities and capabilities and working capacity. That's been the partnership that's been true since before the Revolutionary War, and it's gotten us through a lot of tough times together. Um, I think that partnership still exists, but in many ways, the letter that the AFGE sent to the Secretary of Defense doesn't either highlight that partnership or talk about ways in which we can optimize it. Investing in the organic capability, and what that means is government-owned, government-operated facilities, or in some cases, government-owned contractor-operated facilities, has often been neglected, especially you know since the end of the Cold War when the demands weren't there. It's very useful to think about how you replenish those, but that alone is not nearly enough. And the real answer is how do we work together to actually identify the problems, get the resources in place, find the workforce needed, and solve them. And the other issue that the AFGE brings up is that the government treats these items as commercial items, javelin missiles and so forth, and the launching platforms too, we should say the weapons platforms, and therefore it doesn't get the real production data it would be entitled to get if these were not commercial items, if they were you know, military-specific items. Fair to say they've got a point there too. Well, they may have a point, but the, most of the evidence actually would point in the opposite direction because the vast majority of government procurement contracts does include uh, government access to the technical data and in fact, the government uh, has has more data than it actually is able to use. So I, I don't think the problem is in either the you know, the act, the 1994 FASA Act, which started moving us in the direction of being able to access commercial items, or in the implementation of it. It's in the individual cases where, in fact, the government may not have gotten what they needed, largely because they didn't anticipate needing it and weren't willing to actually pay for it as part of the process. Obviously, companies' intellectual property does have value. And the government should have access to it, but government should, uh, companies should be compensated for their investments there. But I think the larger question is is that uh, uh, the the government's ability to actually, you know, we've we've had a uh, an evolution in the way innovation is going on in, in America and around the world. It used to be, again, back to the Cold War days, you know, most of the necessary innovation for the military and for national security came from government-invested research and development or from government reimbursed independent research and development by the companies. 
That's no longer true. In fact, even starting in the 90s, where you know the federal government's invested in global R&D is somewhere between two and four percent per year. So innovation is coming from the commercial marketplace, both at home and abroad. It's essential that DOD and the federal government have access to that commercial innovation, undermining that in ways that the letter suggests would not work to our advantage. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. I guess that debate is going to go on for some time, and I want to move on to another topic, which is the recently released list of successful bidders in the NIH NITAC program. There's CIOSP, what are they up to, four? and CIOSP, four. And already there's protests, and it was not coming out very clearly, was it? Tom, this, this entire process of solicitation and evaluation criteria for more than a year now has been such a morass for uh, for both contractors and for the government itself. You know, it's important for the government to have the government-wide acquisition contracts necessary for it to uh, access those unanticipated innovations, in fact, that we just talked about. CIOSP4, building on the CIOSP predecessors three and before, um, has been a good access point to that, not only for NIH and the Department of Health and Human Services, but for the whole federal government. But... <laughs> The misstarts and the starts and stops and, you know, literally changes made on the day bids are due has really complicated this thing. Releasing a partial list has left almost everybody in limbo. I guess if you're on the list, you can be pretty sure that you're going to be on the final list. But if you're not on the list, you don't know where you are here, right? You've invested time and money to be part of an acquisition process that's vital but certainly has not been straightforward. Yeah, it's almost like these companies that don't know or merit semifinalists and they're on the wait list of a bunch of colleges. <laughs> well, it's hard to know where you are if they don't tell you that, right? Have you ever seen a situation where there's a partial list of winners released and everyone else is in limbo that either you are on there or you're not? I, I suspect it's happened before, but I went back through my own records and I couldn't find any examples of it, especially at the magnitude that we're talking about here, hundreds of companies joint ventures that were formed solely for the purpose of meeting the arbitrary and constantly changing criteria that NITAC laid out. Uh, and, and now you don't know if you're in or out, even though you've put it in place. And they don't have much time, Tom, because the end of April is, is when this thing needs to be up and running in order to not have a break in necessary services provided across the government. It's not easy to see how the path forward is going to work here. Well, I guess that's going to be their problem because uh, it's going to be resolved one way or the other because GAO has a deadline on deciding that case, the protest. So this could spin out through the summer, I think. It, it does, Tom. And, you know, it's not just a government's problem. I mean, it, it's a problem for the companies as well. And, and those companies are providing essential mission support and capability across the entire federal government and really needs to be resolved much more forthrightly than it has been up to now. What will be resolved sooner, the CIOSP4 or the federal debt limit question? Well, they both are operating on a short timeline, although, you know, the, the debt limit extension, uh, it will be necessary at an undetermined point. I mean, there will be one day where the federal government wakes up and the Treasury Department says, we don't have enough cash in the coffers to pay all the bills that are due today. And, and uh, that date, uh, Jan Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, said, no sooner than early June, uh, the Congressional Budget Office in its update said maybe July, maybe early August. Uh, you know, that timeline is upon us. But the, the battle lines are pretty clearly drawn. The House Republicans have said we're not going to vote for a debt limit extension unless there are spending cuts. And the White House has said we're not talking about spending cuts in exchange for a debt limit extension. One or both of those sides is going to have to move, and pretty quickly. 
We'll leave it at that. David Berteau is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. What a world. Thanks so much for joining us today. Tom, you're welcome, and we're certainly not running out of things to talk about. Look forward to the next one. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, April 5th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, Justice is urged to tighten up its program to keep former convicts from returning to prison. Plus, how the Navy keeps its guns ready to fire no matter where in the world they are. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the State Department makes it easier for people with disabilities to join the Foreign Service. It sets a new standard of medical clearance for prospective diplomats and settles a 20-year-old discrimination lawsuit. The department will also pay plaintiffs $37 million after it rejected or delayed hiring more than 230 people who were unable to obtain a Class One or worldwide available medical clearance. For more, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the acting Deputy Assistant Secretary, Jamila Akbari. A lot has changed since the litigation started. Now, the settlement provides benefits and certainty to the class and to the Department of State now, instead of prolonging the disagreement. The terms of the settlement also align with the department's ongoing efforts to build a workforce that is more inclusive and representative of the American people. This includes persons with disabilities. And I think it's important for your listeners to know that almost one in four Americans identify as a person with a disability. So for the department to truly be reflective of the American public, we need to ensure that we have people with disabilities in the Foreign Service. Our greatest accomplishments, of course, are achieved when diverse, dynamic perspectives power our diplomatic efforts. You mentioned that one in four Americans have some sort of disability, and we've heard in previous conversations that they are well represented within the State Department Civil Service as it pertains to the Foreign Service, which is what this conversation is all about. You know, what kind of metrics are we looking at in terms of employees who have disabilities? So you're right that in the civil service, we do have higher rates of employees with disabilities at the Department of State. When it's the Foreign Service, according to our latest workforce diversity reports, approximately 8% of our full-time permanent Foreign Service officers and close to 12% of our full-time Foreign Service specialists have disabilities. So for your listeners, they may not realize that the Foreign Service is made up of 
different groups of employees. We have our officers and we have our specialists. The specialists tend to be in areas like medical providers or information technology or diplomatic security really folks who have deep expertise in those areas, and our officers tend to be more general. This is, of course, a settlement that has, I think, broad implications for the department. And let's dive a little bit deeper into kind of the central idea here of what the minimum medical qualification standard is for folks who are joining the Foreign Service. How will the department be changing that standard for its Foreign Service applicants, people who are looking to join? Yes, and I I know that's a question that's at the forefront, and you'll hear me saying this quite a lot. It's a mouthful, minimum medical qualification standard, because this is a technical change that the department has made. Now, applicants for career foreign service positions with the department will no longer be required to receive a class one or worldwide available medical clearance. That's the technical term. That's the concept that's really changing here. For foreign service officer and specialist applicants, except for our foreign service medical specialist, the minimum medical qualification standard is based on the designated regional medical evacuation centers. So I know I see your eyes glazing over, Jory. Like, what does that mean? So our regional medical evacuation centers are four posts that have deep medical resources. So that's Bangkok, London, Pretoria, and Singapore. A separate revised minimum medical qualification standard has been agreed to for medical specialists. We need to be able to make sure that they can serve wherever we need them, which is also true for the folks who will be coming in under the settlement. It's just that we need to make sure that they can serve at those four posts and with an accommodation would be able to serve anywhere that we would need them. And I think it's important to point out that that is in the eyes of the department, a floor, not a ceiling, that that is the minimum of what they can serve at. But they are, on a case-by-case basis, I understand, able to serve at additional posts. Exactly. It's important for us to ensure that we can cover the needs of the nation through the Foreign Service and that we are able to ensure that people can serve where we need them. So the revised minimum medical qualification standard agreed to as part of the settlement agreement will be used only to determine whether an applicant is medically qualified for hire and will not be used to determine, define, or limit the universe of posts at which the applicant can serve. So in this regard, the minimum medical qualification standard will operate differently than the pre-employment medical clearance currently used by the department. The settlement agreement makes no change to qualification standards other than the class one medical clearance requirement. Additionally, the settlement agreement makes no change to the department's directed assignment policy for entry-level foreign service employees. So when you join the foreign service, in general, your first two tours, the department will be directing you to where you're needed. After that, usually an employee, a foreign service employee, is able to select or make a bid on where they'd like to go next. An employee's first two assignments will generally be to overseas post, except as service needs dictate. On behalf of the Director General of the Foreign Service and Director of Global Talent, we have an office within the Department of State, our Office of Career Development and Assignments, that directs the first and usually the second post of assignment. A moment ago, we were talking about kind of the baseline numbers of members of the Foreign Service who have a disability of one sort or another. And it seems like this does seem like a settlement that may potentially increase that number. What do you see as the department's expectation of what the settlement's impact might be in terms of 
fewer barriers to entry when it comes to the Foreign Service. The word that I want to talk a little bit more about is barrier, right? The idea is for the Department of State and following the administration's lead around the importance put on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility is to create a barrier-free environment so that anyone with the skills and talents, experiences that we need, they're able to do their best work at the department. And so this settlement will allow more people with disabilities to pursue a career in the Foreign Service. This is an important step forward in the department's efforts to create a workforce that reflects the full diversity of the American people and ensure we have the best team representing the United States abroad. Now, we encourage individuals with a disability interested in a foreign service career to apply for positions with the U.S. Department of State. And I would be remiss if I didn't make a plug for our website, careers.state.gov, if you're interested in learning more about how to join the foreign service. Let's talk about the universe of stakeholders here. There are more than a few. And of them, you know, we're talking about the American Foreign Service Association. They were briefed as part of this settlement. And, you know, it seems like they have some of their concerns assuaged here. But can you just maybe briefly describe the briefings that went through the department in AFSA and how those have gone? Yes. I mean, for us, AFSA is a, an important partner in this settlement agreement. And it took a lot of conversations, not only with AFSA, but across the department to ensure that we were doing what was right for the service, but also what is right for the country and in furthering the administration's DEIA commitments. If we could take a step back and just think about, you know, disability is a part of the human condition, right? So whether it's someone who's coming into the Foreign Service and has a disability or you're already in the Foreign Service and you acquire a disability. We're fortunate at the Department of State that we have a centralized office that provides accommodation solutions and also expertise around accessibility. So that way, suppose I've already been in the Foreign Service for a decade or so. I acquire a disability. I want to go to a post overseas or I side overseas We have at the Department of State an Office of Accessibility and Accommodations that can provide those accommodations to ensure that that employee can go overseas and do the job that we need them to do. Jamila Akbari, Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Global Talent Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how the Navy keeps its guns ready to fire no matter where in the world they are. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.